listening to The Montana Middle, your podcast for Montana politics. I'm Dan West, and joining me for this episode is Kathleen Williams, Democratic candidate for Montana's lone seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. She's currently running against four other candidates seeking to win the Democratic nomination. The primary election is in June, and whoever wins will face Greg Gianforte in November. Of the 11 total candidates running for our two seats in Congress, those occupied currently by Senator John Tester and Congressman Jean Forte, she's one of only two women running. Before I get to our conversation, a word about the Montana Mint and the D.C. update. In its quest to bring the best of Montana to the internet, the Montana Mint supports this podcast because they recognize our effort to make politics more accessible to all Montanans. To keep up with interesting Montana news, check out the Montana Mint at www.montana-mint.com or follow them on Facebook. You can also subscribe to their newsletters about Montana sports and politics and check out their Montana sports podcast called Montana Mint Sports. Here's the D.C. update. Monday, February 12th, was a busy day in Washington. President Trump introduced two large proposals at the same time, his $4.4 trillion budget estimate for 2019 and with it a $200 billion infrastructure plan. Between those two massive policy proposals, there's going to be a lot to talk about for the rest of the year. I'll spare you the details, but I can put the links to those proposals on the episode website in case you want to peruse them. The rest of the week consisted of various budget hearings, and this past week was a recess week, so Montana's congressional delegation were back in the state making the rounds. Senator Tester visited the Montana Agri-Trade Expo, the largest agricultural trade show in Montana, and he met with the Crow Tribe in Billings. He attended an infrastructure roundtable with city leaders in Bozeman and stopped by Montana State University to celebrate the university's 125th birthday. Senator Daines embarked on a Northwest Montana tax cuts tour, starting in Kalispell and making stops in Missoula and Hamilton. He was also in Phillipsburg and up on the High Line in Chester. Congressman Gianforte was also up on the High Line, visiting the Diesel Technology Center at MSU Northern. So that sounds more like a Montana Work Week update than a D.C. update, but there's going to be a lot going on in D.C. this spring, with appropriations and Congress drawing the policy battle lines for the upcoming midterm elections. Speaking of the November elections, here's my conversation with Kathleen Williams, one of five Democratic candidates seeking to challenge Greg Gianforte this fall. For this episode of the Montana Middle, I have Kathleen Williams, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. House seat. And I'm so excited to have her because she's the first House candidate that we have on and also the first female guest that we have on for the show. And so, Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Dan. I'm, I'm honored as well. <laughs> Great. Well, I, uh, I just want to jump right in, if that's okay with you. And, uh, you know, it'd be great if you could spend these first few minutes introducing yourself to listeners of this podcast who may not have heard of you before. So how long have you lived in Montana and what is your professional background outside of politics? So, um, so I'm Kathleen Williams running for Congress, and um, I've lived in Montana for 24 years. Uh, it's the first place that ever felt like home for me. I, I uh, have a career in natural resources planning and policy for 33 years and was uh, moving around the West quite a bit and uh, got a wonderful job in Montana and 
that was 24 years ago. And uh, it's the first, as I mentioned, the first place that ever felt like home. So it's just been been great. I love the state. I love serving it. And I, I love the opportunity to serve the entire state in Congress. That's great. Well, yeah. So you, you've actually served as, as a state legislator for, for three terms uh, in the Bozeman area. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and what, what sort of drove you to run for public office in the first place? Sure. Um, I was legislative staff back in the 90s. Uh, that's a nonpartisan position. That's what the job was that brought me from Oregon to Montana. Um, and back then, I saw a legislature that functioned fairly well. I mean, people were able to to disagree but not be disagreeable. It's it's It was the what we hear about Congress uh, uh, in the past being able to function. They could come together and work on problem solving and policies and then be friends as well, even if they were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Um, I was staff in the 90s. Uh, then I went on to a couple other professional positions. And in 2007, I was frustrated that the Montana legislature couldn't pass a budget, which is the only thing they really are required to do by the state constitution. Um, and the kind of person I am, I don't sit on the sidelines and complain. I tell myself, well, if if I'm concerned, I better be able to step up and, and offer to help. So my husband um, in 2009 decided to go overseas to take a foreign service assignment in Iraq to help them hmm. rebuild their agricultural sector. And I found myself watching too many law and order reruns and was approached uh, by a friend who made a suggestion that I run for the legislature. And I thought about it. And again, that idea of uh, I knew how the legislature functioned in the past and could do it again, and I wanted to step up and lead by example and, and work on issues important to Montana. So so that's why I ran, and um, and I, it was an honor to serve in that capacity. It's really a labor of love uh, to serve the my district and the state in that capacity, and it was great. So um, we had a lot of... Uh, policy successes, even though the Democrats were in the minority, uh, all three of those sessions um, worked on health care issues to expand access and affordability and passed a local food law that um, created 170 new businesses and over 2,000 new products in Montana across both urban and rural uh, sectors. Um, we were a good backstop for um, proposals to transfer public lands. Um, we, we stopped a few of those um, and uh, worked hard on uh, health care, including requiring insurers to cover routine cancer care for patients that were participating in clinical trials. They were refusing to offer that coverage for those patients. And we took four years, but we um, reversed that. And now those costs have to be covered. So happy to answer any other specific questions about the legislative service um, that you might have. Sure. Um, well, yeah, that was a very comprehensive answer. And, and it sounds like you kind of came into, into public service organically, which is maybe sometimes the best way to do it. 
um, it, just listening to your answer there, you know, it's, it, it, we're living in a different time now where it seems like anyone can really run for office. Uh, if, if you, I'm, I'm speaking indirectly about our president, you know, and anyone who, who has the means can, can successfully run a, a campaign and win. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a great aspect of our democracy and our political system, but there is also something to be said about someone who's had a little bit of experience. And, and so the fact that you've served as a legislator, um, I, I'm sure will, will come in handy, you know, should, should you be elected to, to this office as well. And, and, and you mentioned some of the issues. Uh, I, I was looking up your bio before we had this call and I was hoping maybe you could expand a little bit more on some of the policies you worked there. I, I, I saw that you, you were on the agriculture committee. Is that correct? I was, I served on the natural resources committee. Mm -hmm. I vice chaired the agricultural committee in 2013. And then I vice chaired the taxation committee in 2015 okay. and the, um, yeah. And I will say too, that policy experience is, is one thing, but I think too, my professional career in natural resource planning and policy is, has always been about problem solving, um, finding win-win so, solutions for really thorny issues, whether it's in water rights and in-stream flow and um, or uh, helping agricultural folks stay on the land if that's what they choose. Um, so, so I think marrying that um, that win-win solution, rolling up the sleeves, um, practical problem solving with the the specifics of 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 policy and process are are really what is so needed in Congress now, and what I feel I can contribute. Absolutely, that's a good point to make, and yeah, it does sound like you have a good balance on on both sides of that. I um, actually, you just brought this up now, and. I was noticing in in Washington this year it's it's 2018 and and uh, I've heard you know that this is the year that the the farm bill the national farm bill will get reauthorized. Um, I'm wondering if if you might have anything to say on that. I know it's early and it hasn't been introduced yet formally, but um, I, I mean, do you have a perspective on farm bill issues? Oh, yeah, um, my day job is working with farmers and ranchers across the West. So, so we've been talking about farm bill issues um, for quite a while now. The farm bill is really critical to Montana, both, and there's there's several titles in it. There's the um, the uh, safety net title. There's the rural development title. There's the conservation title. Uh, I think there's also a forestry title. So there's. Uh, several elements, excuse me, that's my dog scratching her collar in the background. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, the farm bill is critical to Montana. Um, uh, we need to ensure that we have a farm bill that really works for the West. Uh, sometimes farm bill programs are a little bit biased towards either the Southeast or the Midwest. And we need to make sure that, um, that we're really in the West and in Montana being served well by the the farm bill and its elements so um i'm interested in in uh working with folks on that and making sure that uh that montana's agricultural sector is well served um and and i think it helps to have some 
some background in it. Uh, I've been translating farm bill uh, issues and topics to farmers and ranchers in our uh, internal member newsletter at the Western Landowners Alliance for several years now. So I think it helps that it helps me be able to hit the ground running on some of these issues. Um, and also, I, I've sort of been been married to the Farm Bill because my husband uh, worked for the Natural Resources Conservation Service for 35 years. So oh, okay. uh, the, those NRCS programs are important and certainly Absolutely. there's some areas to improve, but mm -hmm. uh, but I'm familiar with them and, and looking forward to working on a Farm Bill that will serve us well for the next five years. That's great. Well, yeah, and this kind of just leads into my next question and it's more general. Um, what are the top three issues that you will campaign on or you're, you're already campaigning on this spring and, and do they fit with um, what you think is is current in Congress, such as the Farm Bill, or do you th are, are they different than that? Well, um, the Farm Bill's part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I will tell you, Dan, that I've been accused over my lifetime of being an overachiever. So I know you asked me for three topics, but I've been talking about five. So hey, go ahead. That's fine. I hope that's okay. So yeah. the first one is uh, fixing health care. We have mm -hmm. a broken system. Um, it's costing families dearly. Uh, there are folks that are paying tens of thousands of dollars in premiums and potential deductibles before they even uh, have an opportunity uh, or need for treatment. And that's just, that is bankruptcy potential for Montana families. And we really need to fix the healthcare system so that it's affordable, accessible, whether you're in urban Montana or rural. Um, healthcare for me is personal. My mother, uh, when I was 11, she started to lose her memory and my father and I ended up uh, being her caregivers for eight years um, when she was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. So um, so I know what healthcare issues can do to family, um, both economically, socially, and, and, and psychologically. So um, so healthcare is a, a big one for me, and um, and it's 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 quite broken. We need to we need to fix that at the federal level. Um, the second one is uh, is a, a big bucket. It's fostering opportunity uh, for all Montanans, whether it's uh, uh, public education, um, a rewarding career with a decent job that pays well. Um, uh, being able to stay on the land if you're in the agricultural sector or go back to the land if you're so interested. Um, a secure retirement, um, freedom from discrimination, women's rights. It's a big bucket. It's all those mm -hmm. things that that are those values that we hold dear that um, are about fairness and equity and opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that's the second topic. The third is, um, as you might expect from my professional background, is... Uh, is protecting our environment and outdoor heritage. There's been, uh, we depend so much um, on our public lands and our outdoors um, individually and economically and socially here in Montana. Um, it's why many of us live here um, and it's, it's part of our culture, a very mm -hmm. important part of our culture. And so 
there's been um, threatened rollbacks and and uh, uh, just not a commitment to the protections of those values that that I want to see. So I'll be a strong advocate for our environment and outdoor heritage. Um, the fourth topic is returning, as I mentioned, um, my objectives in the legislature, returning civility and the ability to to uh, discuss issues in an adult environment, to um, have uh, integrity and statesmanship in Congress. Uh, all of those things seem to be uh, waning or threatened. And uh, I, I feel like I can lead by example on those uh, high ethics, high integrity, and ensuring that, uh, that the institution of Congress is rebuilt and can function for, for Montana and the world, basically. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fifth topic is um, our place in the world. It's um, most of the other candidates don't seem to be talking about foreign policy, but uh, mm -hmm. being the daughter of a World War II veteran and the wife of a Vietnam era veteran, and also uh, my husband, as I mentioned, uh, really worked hard to try and help Iraq after we um, destabilized that country. Um, I feel like it's my turn to step up and really advocate both for a, a, a strong national security, but also um, peace and stability in the world. Um, I feel like our our role in the world has has eroded so much in just one year, and and we need to work on uh, the programs and the relationships internationally and at home that are going to protect us. And a lot of that is um, peace related programs and and um, assistance abroad. So not just uh, military action, but um, investing abroad and um, fair trade policies, um, etc. So mm -hmm. that's my fifth one is rebuilding our place in the world. Great. Well, that sounds like a, a very thoughtful and, and comprehensive platform that you have. So yeah, I appreciate you, you yeah taking the time to to elaborate on it. And, and if, if I may just ask a, a question to piggyback on that, and I know it wasn't part of our, our, uh, the questions that I sent to you beforehand, but, um, if elected, what would be the first bill that you introduce? So one of my proposals in the healthcare realm is to, um, allow folks 55 and older to buy into Medicare. And I think that, is an opportunity to both reduce the costs in the Medicare pool because we'd be bringing in relatively healthy people, younger people into that pool. And then it would also help uh, reduce the costs in the individual market because the relatively older people um, would be moving into the Medicare pool. So um, I am very intent on trying to figure out how to stabilize the individual market, reduce healthcare costs, um, and increase uh, affordability and access. And I think that uh, allowing folks 55 and older to buy into Medicare and then using that uh, as a national platform for a dialogue on healthcare in general and how we do fix it um, in the long run uh, including a, a public option. Mm -hmm. um, I think that 
is is critical. We haven't really had a national dialogue yet on healthcare. We've we uh, the ACA was enacted, the Affordable Care Act was enacted, and then um, I'm not sure we really all agreed on what the problems were we were trying to solve with that. And then the the rhetoric became repeal and replace, and um, not any suggestions on on what needed to replace it. So. I think we need to have a national dialogue, and I think one way to do it is to is to to jumpstart it in a practical way um, that that we can get through mm-hmm. is to allow folks fifty five and older to buy into Medicare. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's a that's a well thought out idea. Again, and I, yeah, it's a little bit more technical. Um, so I appreciate you you talking about that, and and actually, if if I may, just ask a couple more questions just based on the platform issues. Um, the second one was about economic opportunity or fostering opportunity, like you said. Um, it, you know, as I'm, well, I'm not as young as I used to be, but I, uh, I still have friends that are uh, paying off student loan debt. And, you know, we've been out of college now for probably the better part of a decade. And um, that I know that's an issue that appeals to, that's important to young people. So... Would you would you mind elaborating a little bit on your position on on uh, student loan debt? Yeah, uh, sure, and I'll I'll go a little further. I'll just say you know I am a proud product all the way through my educational career of public education, and I'm a strong advocate of supporting public education, um, making it as accessible as possible in a variety of ways, whether it's pre-K through 12, uh, four-year college, two-year college, um, uh, you know, union-based apprenticeships, uh, Mm -hmm. all kinds of opportunity for people that that want to learn to be able to have that opportunity and not go into egregious amounts of debt. Um, So we need to ensure that the federal government remains a protector of, uh, of student loan and public education opportunities so that we don't, and we have some predatory lending that we need to uh, ensure that students are protected from that. Um, there are some opportunities to, um, or there should be opportunities to refinance student debt, like you can refinance a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make sure that, uh, that folks are uh, have opportunities for training in financial literacy so that if they do choose to take out a loan to go to college, um, they know what they're getting into. Um, and we need to ensure, as I mentioned, uh, multiple opportunities, uh, whether four-year college may not be the choice that you want, multiple opportunities to get the education and training people want to be able to succeed in the world. So um, there's also some debt forgiveness programs. I think um, people going into nursing can get their their um, their student debt mm-hmm. uh, uh, written off. Um, there's been an interesting proposal. I'm very committed to our agricultural sector, and there's been an interesting proposal to um, extend that kind of uh, student loan um, reprieve to people willing to go back into f- or go into farming for five years or more. So 
Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting proposals and we need to ensure that the Pell Grants and the, you know, the assistance that, that the federal government has provided in the past uh, remains for students that want to further their education. Great, great. Um, well, thanks. Thanks again. And, you know, if I'm not going to go through every plank on your platform, but I, I have to get to the third one because it's my favorite issue. And I imagine it's kind of your bread and butter as well. The, the land issue. So I, I think it's, it's very easy to talk about public, public lands and using the term pub, keeping public lands in public hands. That, that tends to be a, a catchy phrase and, and it resonates with certainly the democratic base. But I feel like the land issue, as you said, it's such an important part of Montana's culture, Montana's identity. I feel like it's it's more nuanced than that. And, you know, within the public land sphere, you have different kinds of public lands. You got wilderness, national parks, national forests, all set up and protected for different uses. And then you have private land as well. So I guess, I don't know, I just want to ask you more generally, um, you know, how do you break down the land issue? And do you, do you see, do you see the public land debate kind of overshadowing general land stewardship? Like, are you, like, sometimes I'm worried that we talk so much about public land that we forget about private land. Sure. Um, and again, my day job is working with conservation minded private landowners, um, that want to stay on the land and make a living and also contribute to wildlife, wildlife migration and clean water and clean air and open space. And so, um, so all, all of, sure. I mean, there is a, there's a risk of oversimplifying the, the public land debate, um, yeah. into just the, the risk and the potential and the dialogue about, uh, whether public land stays in federal ownership or not, or whether it goes to states. And then, you know, if it did, whether they'd have to privatize it, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. so I agree that when we talk and, and my, my um, platform is really environment and outdoor heritage. So it's much, it, it includes public lands, but it's much bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about, it's about, uh, as you say, the interface between public and private lands and the values that that they provide and and the ability to work together to um, make collective decisions about management of public lands um, that both fosters the shared values that that private lands uh, provide uh, you know wildlife migrations are a great example um, uh, elk and deer and and others uh, migrate through maybe several types of public land and then quite a few private land holdings to get to their winter range or vice versa. And um, so we're all in this together, really, uh, both landowners, land managers, sportsmen and women, um, uh, conservationists, you know, we all need to be able to discuss our interests, work together, respect um private land and the mandates of public land management, um, those relevant laws and regulations, and, you know, figure out how to move forward as, as a culture and as a society and as a state um, in, in managing these valuable resources. Great. 
Great. Well, yeah, thank you. I, I guess I just wanted to hear you talk about it more because that's, that's your expertise. So yeah, thanks for providing a little bit more. Um, I'm going to just go on to the next question and I feel like maybe we've already covered this a little bit. So feel free to just give a short answer if you want to, but my next question is what separates you from your primary opponents? Sure. So I think something that's a real clear distinction is the ex the experience in a legislative body. So as an elected um, representative uh, at the state level, uh, there's not much that can prepare you for that except working in it. And so as legislative staff back in the 90s, and then also as um, an elected legislator um, in the 2011, 13, and 15 sessions, um, that you you learn and master the, well, I feel like I learned and mastered not only the technical aspects, writing bills and interpreting bills and how the, how the process works, but also really about building relationships and example and um, the importance especially when you when you're in the minority obviously to get a bill passed um, or your concepts heard you have to have people that are across the aisle um, or uh, of, of different um, political stripes support you and so uh, that is a really key both art and skill I think is to um, both pick your issues pick your strategy be really well grounded in what your district and your state is saying they want and need and are struggling with, um, and and learn how to advance those concepts in ways that that are successful. And in some cases, it took me four years. It took me four years to advance the cancer clinical trials bill. It took me four years to advance the local food bill. But but I got good support on those and, and good support on other concepts. And um, I think that's, the experience is critical. I think um, it's also an environment where people can certainly make promises before they go and serve as an elected official, but it's whether you really showcased your political courage and came through um, on those those uh, commitments, and I feel like it, I did. I took some very controversial uh, stands um, and made some some speeches on the House floor that uh, that were difficult for me as uh, personally, um, but they were on very important issues, whether it was women's rights or non-discrimination or advancing the Salish Kootenai Water Rights Compact. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got to you've got to show that you're, you're fulfilling your commitments. And so I think having a record is, is absolutely key to people knowing that I will, I will go to Congress and do what I say, um, because I did it um, <laughs> in the Montana legislature. Right. And then I also think what separates me from uh, the, uh, the other contenders, um, all honorable folks stepping up for the right reasons, um, is that I'm a really unique uh, brand of Democrat. I have a, 
a strong progressive advocacy and voting record, like I just mentioned. Um, but I also span the spectrum and have been honored by the Chamber of Commerce for my work with, with businesses. I created a new type of corporation in Montana that uh, is really attractive to millennials. Um, I was elected in the recession, so one of my priorities was helping diversify our economy. Um, I've also got strong connections in the agricultural community across the state. And then that, that experience passing healthcare legislation and working on really complex topics uh, that all of those things, I think, give me a, um, I can hit the ground running in Congress and, um, and work to, to represent all Montanans. Uh, my last session uh, there's, as you probably know, there's a seating chart uh, in, on the House floor where mm -hmm. all the Democrats are seated together and then all the Republicans are seated together. And I was the last Democrat um, in the seating chart. Uh, so I had a Democrat on my left and a Republican on my right. And and that Republican brought me butterscotches every day. And we, <laughs> uh, I certainly, you know, teamed up with my uh, colleagues um of the democratic persuasion, but I also teamed up with, with Republicans on things that, uh, you know, that we all could agree on. So, um, I think when people ask me, am I a progressive or a moderate? I say, yes, I'm both. <laughs> so I think that's pretty unusual. That's a good story. Were, were you seated based on your last name alphabetically? No, oh. no, I was, I was seated there. I was told because I could hold my own. Oh, um, and didn't, you know, didn't have to be surrounded by people of my own party. Um, just, you know, really good relationships. And, and yeah, so I would, so behind me were Republicans as well. And I remember turning around one time and, and seeing that one of them had the Agenda 21 book and, and um, found some, we found some very interesting things that we both agreed on, even in that book, which is a UN, um, yeah. uh, uh, publication. So, um, yeah. That's so funny. to me, it's really about people. It's about relationships. It's about representing the people of Montana and working with, uh, my fellow elected, uh, representatives as people who, um, we look for common ground and there's, there's common ground to be found. And there's, there's ways to influence people that, change their minds on things. And I think I have a unique ability to either pull a story or pull some kind of different kind of, of rationale to advance um, what I'm working on and what I care about and, and things that work. Great. So that's great. Well, thanks. And it's it's been great uh, interviewing you. I, I don't want to take much more of your time, but I do have a few closing questions. Um, so what's a favorite story from the campaign trail so far? You know, when I saw that question, it was really hard for me to pick one because <laughs> what I love doing is, and I loved it being a legislator as well, is talking to as many Montanans about what they care about, what they care most about. And so I've been making a lot of uh, phone contacts and personal contacts and talking to folks about, you know, what is it? That what rises to the top for you at the federal level? And there are so many 
worries and concerns and and um, frustrations and and hopes um, that it's really hard for me to to pick one and they just all are a wonderful mix of how great this state is from corner to corner and you know um, background to background mm -hmm. so um, so it's hard for me to pick any one story um, but I will tell you that uh, our campaign team had to chuckle a little bit because we when we were coming back from a forum in Helena um, we pulled into a gas station and and uh, and pulling in right next to us was one of the other candidates and um, we got out rolled down the window and chatted and and filled up the gas tanks and and took off in our in our um, mutual directions um, but it but that's that's elections in Montana that's you know funny. you can yeah. you can be opponents and then you can you can tell jokes at the gas pump and and then and then uh, go on so um, but without, there will be more stories from the campaign trail and we're really um, we're gonna we're gonna do some fun things and honor our uh, outdoor heritage and so I encourage your readers to stay tuned and follow our campaign. Yeah. So what do the next few months look like? Where are some of your upcoming stops? So um, we will be in uh, in Great Falls on Monday the 26th. Okay. Um, and I think all of these are on our Facebook page um, on our events. So if people are interested in the time and location, um, they can look those up. Okay. Uh, the 28th will be in Lewistown. March 3rd, we're doing phone banks in Bozeman and Missoula uh, that people, we'd love people to join in on. Uh, March 6th, we'll be in Missoula. March 12th, we'll be in Shelby. March 21st, we'll be in Columbus. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that are uh, being put on the calendar in between all those dates. So oh, um, we want to talk to as many Montanans as possible, whether it's by phone, by email, in person, um, just want to hear their hopes, dreams, and struggles and what their priorities are at the federal level. Yeah, well, it sounds like a nice mix of large towns and small towns. So it sounds like a fun time. I'm I'm jealous, actually, that you get to go it on a nice fun. little road well, trip around the state. You can ride with us. We'll, <laughs> we'll do another podcast from, from the road if you want. Well, that would be fun. Yeah, maybe we can do that uh, down the road, as you said. Down the okay. road, on the road. Yeah. Um, hey, that we could call it that. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So you mentioned Facebook. Um, I, you know, I usually have a, a link to to the guest a website who, of whoever comes on. So that'll be on the the episode link. And um, yeah, that's it for me. I, I, if you have any final final words you'd like to say before we sign off, you're you're welcome to. Well, thank you. And I'll just, uh, in case people are listening, um, uh, uh, well, they are listening, but uh, <laughs> the the, we the website is KathleenForMontana.com. That way they can get it uh, on the podcast Great. without um, having to go somewhere else if they choose. And I'll just uh, say thank you for the opportunity to chat with you and, and thereby to your uh, audience and um, I just uh, really am looking forward to the honor of serving all of Montana in Congress and um, and welcome everyone's uh, questions, support, input, and um, and encouragement. So uh, so we'd love we'd love people to get engaged in our campaign as they see fit, and um, and it's it's a total honor. And thank you, Dan, for the opportunity. 
thank you. It's it's been great getting to know you over the this episode, and uh, and I wish you all the best. Thanks so much. All right, take care. Take care. Bye bye. That was Kathleen Williams, Democratic candidate for Montana's House seat and one of only two women in the race. I really enjoyed speaking with her, and I wish her the best. I want to add that Democratic women may very well be the most active political demographic right now. Many people say politics swings like a pendulum, and if that's true, then progressive women may very well be, to Trump, what the Tea Party was to Obama. Just look at what we've seen over the past year, from singular events like the Women's March to sustained activity like the grassroots Trump resistance movement and the Me Too movement. Women around the country are driving politics right now, so we may see a surge in women candidates winning seats this fall. And Montana is definitely due for another congresswoman. The last one we had was also the country's first one, Jeanette Rankin. This last word segment is about the First Amendment and the debate over free speech. I bring it up because of this controversial talk that happened at the University of Montana on February 13th. It was a conservative political science professor from North Carolina named Mike Adams, and his talk was called The Death of Liberal Bias in Higher Education. His main point was that by living in a free society, you will be exposed to something that offends you, inevitably. But that is a small price to pay compared to the value of actually having free speech. He is a free speech defender, but he also says offensive things from time to time. Senator Daines and Congressman Gianforte sent in video remarks before the speech. Here's what Senator Daines said. It's truly an honor to be saying a few words tonight at the Jeff Cole 10th Annual Distinguished Lecture. But especially wonderful that Professor Mike Adams will be the featured speaker. A special thanks to Maria Cole for being here and standing strong for what is right. Because by gathering here this evening, you're sending a strong message that our freedom of speech is worth fighting for. You're telling the leaders of our state's academic institutions that faith and conscience can't be swept aside when people walk through university gates. When I first heard that the University of Montana School of Journalism had tried to refuse to let Mike Adams speak on campus because of his religious and political beliefs, I was stunned. With this decision, a public, taxpayer-funded university and a journalism school, no less, was ignoring the most basic principles of the First Amendment. The First Amendment is pretty simple. We have the right to free speech. We have the right to freedom of religion. This amendment protects our freedom of expression and assembly, and it protects the freedom of the press. And in case the University of Montana forgot, that includes everyone from journalism students to Missoulian reporters, and from MSNBC commentators to townhall.com columnists. Lux et veritas, light and truth. Believe it or not, that's the University of Montana's motto. But by seeking to stop Mike Adams from coming to this campus because of his faith and his politics, I don't see a lot of light or a dedication to truth coming from the journalism school leaders. 
as we welcome Mike Adams to tonight's Jeff Cole 10th Annual Distinguished Lecture. I urge you all to seek the truth, even when it's hard, and especially when people stand in your way. Shine a light on those who attempt to restrict our freedoms and our rights, and stand true to what you believe. Thank you very much, and God bless. It's a scene that seems to be happening more frequently lately around the country, where a speaker who some consider to be controversial is invited to speak on a university campus, and they are met with protests. Right-wing speakers seem to be getting protested more than left-wing speakers, too. That's just something that I've observed. But I'm thinking of these past examples like students at Berkeley protesting against uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who works for Breitbart, I believe, and then the University of Florida students protesting against Richard Spencer. To me, it looks like free speech is being exercised all around, and people are getting offended as a result of it. So I get what Professor Adams was saying. While he was giving his lecture, groups of students protested outside. Some disrupted the talk as well. Frankly, I'm glad to see this as long as no one gets hurt. It reassures me that the University of Montana is still a vibrant place. It's been struggling recently, but it's still a place for people from different backgrounds and opinions to come together to hear each other's ideas. It's a safe, vibrant, intellectual community, which is what a university always should be. But it also looks like things have gone a little further than just exercising free speech. What do you do when two groups exercising their rights to free speech use their right to try to suppress one another? I think UM students cast the first stone by interrupting and disrupting Professor Adams' talk. That is a form of protest, which is free speech but it happened while someone else was talking, and that violates their speech. There's other ways to protest, like there's a, a group called Missoula Rises that bought out a bunch of seats or registered for a bunch of seats at the lecture and then didn't show up. So out of a, about 1,000 a seats in the auditorium, there was only about 700 people. But out of those 700 people, there were a couple that interrupted the talk. Professor Adams fired back by sending an open letter to the Montana State Legislature, asking them to pass a bill like one in his home state of North Carolina. The bill affirms protection of free speech and expression on campus, but then uses that affirmation as the basis for disciplinary action for anyone who disrupts or interferes with the protected free expression rights of others. It also creates a committee that would oversee the enforcement of its provisions and establish freshman orientation programs describing the policies regarding free expression. Now, <clears throat> this law is kind of weird to me. Currently, we are in kind of a free-for-all situation where you have a campus where people can exercise free speech by shouting or interrupting others without any repercussion other than being escorted out of the auditorium. This law would establish rules to allow people to exercise free speech as long as they aren't interrupting or disrupting someone else's free speech. But where do you draw the line between what is interruption and what is protest? And what kind of punishment is it? It seems like a slippery slope. Under that law, what happens to the student after they get escorted out of the auditorium for interrupting a speech? Does their name go on a list somewhere? Would it go on their record? Would that hurt their chances to graduate? And let's not also forget the conditions for interruption. Either the interrupter is a rude person 
or the person being interrupted is saying something offensive that warrants an interruption. Yes, those students who interrupted the professor were being rude. But this guy is also a professor. Shouldn't he be able to express his ideas in a more eloquent way that doesn't invite interruption? I'm not sure why Professor Adams talks the way he does, but his speech speaks for itself. And a professor, of all people, should understand the power of words. I'm glad the University of Montana is still kicking, and I hope it continues to be a source of vibrant intellectual discussion for a long time. I'd like to see how far UM students take this new feud they have with Professor Adams. The students started it by interrupting his talk, and the professor has fired back by lobbying Montana's legislature to pass a bill that would prohibit interrupting his future talks. His letter also calls UM students petulant children and criminals. So I guess now the ball is back in the students' court. We'll see what they do, and we'll see how far Professor Adams goes with his lobbying. I'll post his letter on the website if you want to read the whole thing. That's it for episode 8 of the Montana Middle. Thanks for listening. Outro music for this episode is again provided by Lainey Lou and the Bird Dogs out of Bozeman. The song is called Ladies' Night, which I think is appropriate for this show's first female guest. Thanks again to Kathleen Williams for coming on, and here's Lainey Lou and the Bird Dogs. Thanks again for listening. Take care.